Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Lillian Sue, and I'm currently at Phoenix Children's. Today, we will be speaking with our co-host and four guests from different institutions on various practical challenging cases in the CBICU. Deanna, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining the podcast today. I'm Deanna Zanatos. I am a cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital in the University of Louisville and one of the co-executive producers of the PCICS podcast with Lily. And I'm really excited to talk to everybody today. And then we'll go ahead and have our guests introduce themselves. Lisa, would you like to go first? Hi, uh, thank you so much for inviting me today. Uh, my name is Lisa Grimaldi. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Phoenix Children's Hospital. And uh, I guess my area of interest is mostly in medical education. So I love to listen to other people talk about uh, cardiac ICU topics and give me ideas about how to teach them to students and learners. So thanks again for including me. And then Kiona. Hi, um, I'm Kiona Allen. I'm the medical director of the cardiac care unit at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. I'm also the director of the single ventricle program. So even when I'm not on service, I end up getting pulled into many difficult decision trees uh, as a result of both of those roles. Thank you for having me. Go ahead, Sushma. Hi, I'm Sushma Reddy. I'm from Lucille Packard at Stanford. Um, I'm in the cardiac ICU and in addition, I have a basic science lab and my focus has been right ventricular failure, both clinical and from a basic science cellular remodeling. Thank you for having me today. And then Alex, go ahead. Hi, my name's Alex Flo. I'm a cardiac intensivist at uh, Toronto Hospital for Sick Children. Um, and I also am a member of the single ventricle team at uh, the hospital. My academic interest has to do with post-operative nutrition and inflammation. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right. Well, thank you guys for all joining. As um, Deanna and I were saying earlier in the pre-briefing, this is a little bit of an experiment and we hope that you guys all kind of have fun with it. We want our listeners to gain some practical knowledge about how people are doing various decision making at various different institutions. And we'd love our listeners just to kind of get a glimpse into each of our units and kind of how you guys make decisions um, at the bedside every single day as you take care of our pediatric cardiac critically ill children. So one thing that one caveat that we want to do tell our listeners is that this is not a guideline or direct sort of medical advice. These are all supposed to be taken in the context of your sp particular patient. So we would we don't want to say that um, we're advocating for any of these sorts of recommendations or anything like that, but just kind of a practical insight into what, what's actually happening. And then just to also say that each of these professionals are not representing their institution in that sort of formal way. Um, but again, we're just here to kind of have fun and have some insight into these various different scenarios. So kind of to launch us off, Part of the reason that we were even thinking about having this podcast was because I was on service and everything always starts when you're on service, but I had a patient who was a single ventricle, Norwood, who required ECMO and the patient required CVVH. And so obviously when you're on ECMO, that's quite easy to do, but as the child was ready to come off from a hemodynamic perspective, 
we had to talk a lot about how we would provide dialysis for this patient. So starting with Kiona, because you did say that you're pulled into many of these sorts of scenarios. I'd like to just start off with you and um, ask you, what is your general approach to how you would offer dialysis to a patient like this? Well, I wish that this didn't come up as often as it seems to. I think we have had a lot of kind of unusual Norwoods lately that seem to have a more complex course. I'm not sure why that's been, but um, this has come up for us a, a kind of more than I anticipated. We have had a lot of surgical changes in our program over the past five years or so. So I've sort of seen the whole gambit of ways that people would manage this, um, including most recently now our current surgeon is a big proponent of PD drains and came from um, Cincinnati where they do that a great deal. And so um, right now the patient likely would have already had a PD drain um, and we've gone really honestly in the last month to actually not just doing passive drainage with it, but utilizing it for actual PD dialysis cycles, even for patients on ECMO. Although if they were on ECMO, I think we certainly would consider doing um, CRT just for the convenience of it. But when they're trying to come off, obviously the concern is the really small vessels that these kids have and how do you stuff a giant dialysis line in a kid who's three kilos or whatever they are. We've done this a couple of different ways. One would be to try and utilize PD. Historically, that's been more difficult for us though, because our previous cadre of surgeons have been sort of plus minus about PD drains. So our transplant surgery colleagues have been the ones placing them um, as tunneled catheters. And we have had major, major issues with them leaking that has limited our ability to use them quickly. So I think one of the things that we've tried to do is, and they don't love this because the patient's on anticoagulation on ECMO, is to try and get a PD drain in early to try and let it start maturing um, so that then when we do come off of ECMO, we have the option to utilize that early on. And we just sort of give it as long as we think we can, and then we use it if we have to use it. And I would say that's probably the first pass with the backup plan to then try and figure out a way to do vascular dialysis. Sometimes we've been able to put in a smaller line and we recently moved to having access to both Carpadium and Aquadex, which gives us a little bit more options as far as smaller catheters, but we did not have that historically, which made it much more difficult. I would say when in an absolute pinch, something that we have done a couple times, is put in a trans chest dialysis line, um, at least for the duration of open chest time. So I think it kind of depends on like what you think is gonna happen with the kid. If you think you're moving towards something like a VAD or something like that, and you're gonna have to keep the chest open for a little while to sort of buy you time either to mature the PD drain or to see if you're gonna have renal recovery, that's something we've sometimes used. I would say my, my experience with how well it goes has been very full. But I would say those are sort of the strategies. So PD as a first pass, if you can get to a point where you can use it, trying to temporize with other things in the meantime, whether it be staying on ECMO for a couple extra days, which obviously has its own morbidity and mortality risks, I'm trying to do a trans chest line to at least get off ECMO but keep the chest open. Or if you aren't having as Big an issue with clearance, maybe using something like Aquadex if it's mostly ultrafiltration that you need. 
and we've only had carpe diem for about three weeks. So, well, that's not true, but for about a month. So I think we're not sure yet exactly how we're going to implement that into our practice. So, hey, Kiona, just because some of our listeners may not have ever heard of Carpe Diem or Aquadex, do you mind just giving a brief kind of one-liner on each of those systems and any sort of weight or vascular restrictions on either? Yeah, I think we're still trying to sort out that the answer to that question, to be perfectly honest. Aquadex, the way I conceptualize it, it, it really just does ultrafiltration. It doesn't really do clearance. So if you're really in a, you know, some of our kids are just massively fluid overloaded and that's the reason that they still need CRT. So it can be a good option for that. We've seen a lot of solute drag with it, which has been challenging. So we haven't been as pleased with it as I think we had hoped we would be. And we've also had some issues with the catheters themselves because in my mind, the reason to use it is that you can use a smaller catheter. Um, but it sounds like across the country, a lot of programs that are using it are still using sort of standard size seven French enough dialysis catheters to use it. Um, and that's what the, the company has been telling us. So I think I'm, I'm not as convinced that that is going to be as widely applicable and the like solve all of my life problems that I thought it was going to be. And then Carpedium um, does do solute clearance as well as ultrafiltration. Um, but you sort of set it a little bit different than CRT, where you sort of you sort of set it to take off a set volume over the 24-hour period. You can only do it with heparin, and you have to do a restart every day. And its primary use is in smaller patients. So I think for the most part, if they're bigger, you wouldn't really go to that therapy. But for smaller patients, particularly here in the NICU, they've started using it. And so it's something we definitely consider in our kids who are like five kilos and under. And just to clarify, the Carpe Diem is with two different vessels? No, Carpe Diem is typically still with just one vessel, but you can use a slightly smaller catheter, is my understanding. How about you, Alex, at, at Sick Kids? What what would be the general approach there? Anything different yeah. than what Kiona said? Yeah, no, very good question. Uh, we re rarely do dialysis, uh, but most of our surgeons do put in um, PDs uh, for the children as they leave the OR. And so these children, these higher risk children would come with that access already in place. Um, it becomes quite a reliable source of uh, both uh, volume uh, maintenance or management as well as uh, electrolyte management and acid base, it just becomes uh, more difficult in terms of creatinine clearance. That being said, one of the challenges, particularly for kids who go on to ECMO, is the risk of evolving necrotizing enterocolitis and sort of the discussion of whether to use uh, PD in the setting of uh, abdominal pathology which uh, many centers would uh, consider it an absolute contraindication. And depending on the severity, it would be a relative contraindication. We've used the transthoracic lines or intracardiac lines, as we would call them. Um, and if we had no other options, we would put in an, an intrajugular uh, line for, for dialysis as well. Uh, a lot will depend in terms of what the cannulation strategy for ECMO is as well. We're assuming that 
this is an intracardiac cannulation uh, following an OR, but sometimes um, if we're cannulated in the ICU following an operation, uh, we go direct to neck cannulation. And if so, when removing the neck cannulas, that gives you the opportunity to slip in a uh, regular VASCATH and be, to be able to do uh, regular dialysis through that line, which is secured then surgically. Uh, that would be the general approach here. And then Lisa, how about how about here? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll say, uh, you know, this is a bit of a cop out, but I think I certainly have in the past um, advocated for keeping the child on ECMO a little bit longer, uh, which you hate to do. But um, I, you know, have had some success with that, with just giving a little more time for renal recovery. But in the event that that doesn't happen, I'll tell you, you know, I was always terrified of peritoneal dialysis in this patient population. But in recent years, we've had some experience and some success with it. You know, we at our institution, we do not routinely put uh, PD catheters in our post-ops. Um, we've done it on occasion in, in sort of select circumstances. Um, and usually in those patients, we have not had to use it for dialysis. But on the more recent occasions where we have had these challenging cases and have, have had to use PD, we've had some success with it. And I think, um, you know, we're fortunate at um, our institution that we have a, a really uh, proactive and, and strong nephrology team, I think, who has guided us with that. And that's been really helpful. Um, I was always terrified of sort of increasing abdominal pressure in these single ventricle, you know, very fragile patients. But, um, you know, you can do it. It works. Uh, it definitely has some challenges. Um, but, you know, using very small dwell volumes. Um, I think it's probably the best option uh, for these kids. Um, I have tried to use, um, you know, CVVH catheters and the little ones in the past. And it's, it, as you've all mentioned, I mean, it's just the, the catheter size is just the limiting, the limiting factor. So I think that's kind of where we're at at our institution now. Awesome. And, and Sushma, last but not least, how about at Stanford and Packard, what would your approach be? I think it's very similar to what everyone else is saying. Uh, we'd start off using the circuit. They're almost always cannulated through the open chest because they come back with an open chest. When the um, cannulas are ready to come out, we'd exchange them out with a dialysis catheter, so initially through the open chest, until we wait for a PD catheter to mature and transition over. And we weren't really aggressive with PD until several years ago, but I think we are learning from the Cincinnati group that we can do this safely and effectively. Just a question for the group. Not that we've done this here, but has anyone used continuous PD uh, technology for continuous PD flow? I know it's been uh, used overseas, uh, particularly in... Uh, and centers like in South Africa and uh, Red Cross Children's. Um, and that would give you the ability to have uh, PD without that dwell volume with uh, higher um, intra-abdominal pressures. We, we haven't used it, it ourselves. How does it, I don't even think I knew that was a thing. How does it work? You instill continuously in drain contingency? Exactly. Yeah, you have two catheters. So the exact volume that's going in is coming out at the same time, Alex? 
So le less uh, less volume going in than coming out, uh, so that way you achieve negative balances. Um, and uh, the rationale is what's going in would uh, would obviously be higher osmolality and tonicity, and that would draw out fluid, and uh, you'd be able to uh, bring it out through the other catheter. Yeah, I have some experience with that in the general PICU population, but not not in any cardiac ICU patients. Yeah, I too have never heard of that. So that's why I'm, I'm actually fascinated by this. How long has this technology been around and what are, what are the thoughts on it coming to the U.S. and Canada in a more formal way or a more adopted way, I guess, in the CBICUs? Uh, as I mentioned, we've never used it. I've seen uh, one presentation from the group in South Africa, um, and uh, there are reasons why uh, that type of uh, dialysis support is helpful in uh, uh, lower uh, resource uh, centers. But uh, as mentioned, I don't have any experience with it myself. And Lisa, you've seen that in the PICU population. Are they using that for a particular population or when the vessels are limited or what was the context? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of more in, a, in the chronic setting and chronic patients um, that were sort of already well established with nephrology, um, uh, not really as sort of an acute rescue, but I have seen that technology used and, and it's nice and, you know, you don't get a lot of you know, hemodynamic shifts and things like that. So it seems like it might be applicable in, in our cardiac and our, you know, really fragile cardiac population. Is there an increased risk of infection with two catheters versus one? I wonder if it's not that bad because hopefully it doesn't leak as much, you know, like if you're doing, if you're keeping it relatively empty, I feel like it's the leaking that increases the risk so much. I wonder if it's less. What a great way to take off some of the workload from our nursing colleagues. Yeah, especially because I'm sure like, Lisa, I think, was saying you guys do it with small fill volumes, frequent cycles, and you can't really use the auto cycler because then it starts to leak. So it is like so labor intensive. Can I just ask, do any of you guys have Carpadium at your centers? No. Well, I will let you know how it goes. I'm actually <laughs> in the brochure right now, and it's describing using catheters as small as four French double lumen to do this. Uh, but we haven't act, we've only done it in one kit so far. So we should do this again in six months. I'll tell you how I feel about it. I'm very intrigued um, to learn about that because I feel like that could solve a lot of our, our problems. I do have one question. I know we need to move on. I feel like we could talk about this, this for a long time, but um, you know, our surgeons will sometimes put in a PD drain and sometimes put in a PD catheter. And so I'm sort of wondering when you were talking, Kiona, initially about like already having that catheter, do you use like a regular drain or do you use um, to do PD or do you do you make that distinction? Yeah. Great question. And um, that has been an interesting evolution because, again, we've had a lot of turnover. So we've tried to, I think we were pleased at, in one of our iterations of the program here, we had a surgeon who was using um, PD drains at his prior institution, but we did not have the right kind of drain here. So initially, he was just placing like an actual drain, not a catheter, 
And so we were really only able to do passive drainage. Then we got new catheters that didn't work well, that leaked too much, and we couldn't use them. So that's all been a problem. Now that we have someone who really it's a major part of his practice, um, we have better catheters and we have been able to actually use them for true PE, again, manually. But um, the most recent kid, not in Norwood, but we had a kid who we did um, PE for three weeks before um, then transitioning to, um, unfortunately, CRT, but um, because it started to leak, but we were able to use it for quite some time, which I think we were worried about infection and using a temporary catheter that long. Yeah, that's where um, people, the nephrologists start to get really stressed out if we don't have a, um, if we're continuing to do it and we don't have a permanent catheter in and the surgeons are always like, well, it's working. Why do you want to change it? You know, so, oh no. That is exactly, exactly what happens. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. All right. Well, that was a fantastic discussion. Um, we have another question for you guys. We, that was a warm up. Um, if you have a neonate on prostaglandins and they get a fever, what is your criteria or threshold for doing an LP? Maybe we can start with Alex. Thanks, Diana. It's very good question. I We rarely do LPs uh, in the cardiac group. Uh, even for kids that uh, were suspicious for potential uh, meningitis. From my perspective, I would make, I would only do a lumbar puncture if I, under two conditions. Number one, that we had a confirmed bacteremia. Uh, so the index of suspicion of a meningitis was high over and above just a fever. Um, and number two, that uh, I felt that the child had a congenital heart disease and a physiology that doing a lumbar puncture would be well tolerated. Um, in cases where those where the suspicion for meningitis was high, but both those criteria weren't met, I would pace, uh, place them on longer-term antibiotics to treat at meningitic doses and treat for three weeks to limit the potential complications of uh, lumbar puncture in this population. Yeah, certainly uh, risky. Sushma, anything different? Just the same. Um, If they're hemodynamically stable, inflammatory markers are high, they have a bacteremia, they can get an LP. The reason uh, I would favor doing an LP if we meet those conditions, especially if it's a pre-op Norwood, for example, are we going to delay surgery for three weeks or four weeks while we give antibiotics? So that may just help us get to the OR a little bit sooner. Yeah. And when you're doing, um, if you do decide to do the LP and it's sort of pre-treated, do you send like the cerebral pathogen panel or some other um, panels other than just the routine cultures? Um, Still send routine. What about you, Lisa? Yeah, I would say I'm mostly on the same page with um, Alex and Shushma. Uh, I would add, you know, I was very excited when the new guidelines for, you know, looking at or um, treating infants with fever came out. I think in 2021, the AAP put that out, and I was hoping that might provide some guidance uh, for our patients or at least something that we could extrapolate because this is a you know, a problem we we struggle with. Um, it, it didn't really uh, provide that much help, but I did think it was interesting how there's sort of a greater um, um, 
attention paid to inflammatory markers uh, in, in the new guidelines. And that's something we've been doing in our patients for a while. And so I would say um, more recently, I've been factoring that into the decision a little bit more. So I agree with Alex and, and Sushma. I, I very rarely do LPs in our patients. Um, but the two things I do kind of take into consideration, if I think from a physiologic standpoint, the patient will handle it and the, you know, the risk is not, you know, far outweighing the benefit, you know, if the fever is more than 39, because if you look at the data, you know, fever is so common in, in these kids on PGE, but most of those kids are going to have temperatures below 39. Once you get above 39, you know, then I start to think about it a little bit more, uh, since that would be a little unusual for a sort of PGE fever. And then also inflammatory markers, um, you know, if the procalcitonin especially, I think the cutoff in the fever guidelines is 0.5. So I kind of take that into consideration as well. Um, again, if I think the risk is not too excessive, but in general, I do it very rarely. And also, as Alex mentioned, if the child, if we isolate an organism that we know is highly associated with meningitis and it, you know, might help tailor therapy and things like that, then then I would consider doing it as well. How about you, Kiana? Yeah, I think all of those things are true. I think it it always it's it's difficult to meet the criteria that Alex said. I feel like usually if we're worried about meningitis, the kid is pretty sick, and then you talk yourself out of doing the LP. So I we probably I can remember like four times total that we've done it since I've been in attending care. And usually the NICU is agitated about it, and IV is agitated about it. And we just have to explain to them that our patients are very special. Um, but I think it's pretty rare for us to actually practically hit those criteria um, and need to do it. Can I ask you guys a follow-up? How many of you guys have actually seen a positive bacteria grow in a CSF fluid? Yeah, so I've, I've actually never seen it. Um, yeah, again, this this came up when from a clinical scenario, and so I was struggling a little bit about not doing an LP on a child, but I didn't feel like the child um, was hemodynamically stable enough to actually sustain it. And of course, ID and the NICU, yeah, they all want us to do these things. And it's always just, it's difficult not to do it because of our pediatrics training, but at the same time, just from a practical approach. So I actually did do a little bit of a lit review. And Alex, thank you for the article. We can actually include um, on the um, continuous renal replacement that was presented because we can actually include articles as an attachment to our podcast. But when I looked at this, there was a case series where only 5% of the patients who got a fever with prostaglandin, which they found to be dose dependent. So they found a lot more fever with the 0.02 over even the 0.01. And um, even in the 5% that they did do a sepsis workup, none of the babies had a positive um, CSF culture. Yeah, I was just going to comment um, on what you said, Lillian. You know, I actually have, I can think of two in over a course of many, many years where we actually did have a positive CSF culture, but those kids were sick, you know, as, as, as we were saying, you know, those kids, it wasn't just fever. I mean, those were kids that had some hemodynamic mobility. We waited until they were more stable uh, to do the LP and it did end up being positive. So it, it does happen. But again, I think the fever in and of itself is not, not a, enough of a driver to, uh, to take that risk. And I was just going to add again, just from my perspective in medical education, you know, when you have 
you were saying um, how, you know, ID sometimes gives us a hard time about it, understandably, but when there are learners in the unit, it gets tricky too, because uh, especially pediatric residents uh, and medical students, um, you know, who are, are taught that, you know, this is the guideline, this is what we should be doing. And it kind of keeps us on our toes a little bit and honest a little bit that <laughs> we have to admit that maybe we're not doing exactly uh, what, uh, you know, the board answer uh, would be but that our patients are just different and fragile and we have to, you know, sort of use our judgment in those situations. Cardiac ICU is destroying wonder. antibiotic stewardship all across the country. Every day. Uh, I so almost true. wonder if the AAP guidelines exclude our patients um, because they talk about the child coming from home um, and even if they're admitted, it's for something else. So I don't even know if our children fall into those guidelines. And it seems like it's a wonderful opportunity for PCICS to take on um, for us to develop our own guidelines. If you think about the number of cultures we do on these patients and the number of times we delay surgery because of a fever, that's quite significant, quite a significant uh, healthcare burden. It's funny, or capture that, that feels like it wouldn't be that hard for us to do. Somebody listening, Get that done. <laughs> it's funny, we almost never do LPs. Like I, when this question came up, I thought I can't remember the last time. And then just this week, a baby had a positive HSV swab that someone had sent. And then we were like, oh, okay. So we did do um, the LP in that case, but that's the first one in many years that I can remember us doing. It was negative. Lisa, I just wanted to ask you, in those two kids, did they have positive blood cultures as well, or was it purely just the CSF? Yes, they did have positive blood cultures. I think one was uh, a gram-negative serratia was one of them. I can't remember what the other one was, but yes, they, they both had positive cultures, blood cultures. Yeah, so I, that would be my general approach as well. When If there is enough threshold, I would always send the blood culture first and then only do it if there was something in, in the blood culture, but interesting, interesting discussion, really helpful. We'd like to interrupt this episode to thank the sponsor of this episode, Atrium Health. Their congenital heart center was established in 2010 and has been ranked as one of the top 50 pediatric heart centers in the country by US News and World Report for the last nine years. Their comprehensive services include cardiac imaging, diagnostic and interventional catheterization, invasive EP, dedicated cardiovascular ICU staff, and regional referral programs in heart failure, transplantation, adult congenital heart disease, and fetal echocardiography. Surgical and cardiac catheterization volume are growing at a rate of 10 to 15% per year, and their two state-of-the-art cath lab and EP labs opened in February of 2017, with dedicated staff and anesthesia team. Their new outpatient office complex also opened in December 2020 and is designed to treat all patients from pedal cardiology to ACHD. They have one of the most comprehensive cardiac neurodevelopment programs in the Southeast, providing a multitude of specialty services to their congenital heart patients in the same office suite. Thank you, Atrium Health, again for sponsoring this episode. We're gonna move on to our third case. This is something also that came up recently. So if you have a pre-op truncus, 
who is good weight, looks great, room air, hungry, wants to eat, do you allow them, that patient, to PO ad lib? Um, and Lisa, we'll start with you. Wait, can I ask a question first? A precursor yeah. question. I'm I'm assuming that I know the answer to this, but like, you know, once upon a time, people would send you a trunk is home. Are you guys all keeping your truncuses and doing them in their initial birth hospitalization? And what's the wait time? Because that determines a little bit how you answer this question. Yeah, and that's exactly why this came up. I, I mean, we always talk about how these patients used to go home. I mean, it was not ideal, which is why we changed that strategy. But they were for a period of time, these this population that was allowed to allowed to wait and kind of grow at home. Does anybody send a trunk of home these days? No. Yeah, we don't. But we had a patient recently that uh, an outside uh, cardiologist had seen the patient and sent them home. And then the child came in at a few weeks of age and we were all shocked by that. Oh, my gosh, this kid was at home. But the child was doing fine, you know, was eating and, and growing and doing OK. But no, we, we do not send them home. But Keona, I wonder if that's also different internationally. I wonder if there are units across the world that actually do. So maybe when we post this podcast, it'll be interesting to hear from people whether this is kind of a North American centric view, but there are still places that are in fact sending some of these children home. Lillian, um, I do think there's a that there is an international flavor to this because a lot of uh, international uh, centers actually will not do neonatal surgeries or try to avoid neonatal surgeries because of their outcomes. And so they have better outcomes beyond that uh, first uh, month period. And so it's it wouldn't be uncommon in some centers. Ah, interesting. So practically speaking, Lisa, what would, what do you do at the bedside? Do you allow those children to eat a limited amount or what's Oh, gosh. Well, I am a self-proclaimed wimp when it comes to feeding uh, these patients. Uh, You know, you only have to be burned by this once, I think. And when you see the child eat themselves into neck, which we at least my generation was always taught was not possible. But then when you see it once, um, you don't want to see that again. So I, I do not. Um, it, there's a lot of guilt that goes along with that when the, the child is hangry and, and looks well, but in a trunk is specifically, no, and this is something that I've looked at the data too, because I, you know, it is such a difficult question, and and we know, you know, the majority of of kids that are going to get neck are the hypoplastic left heart patients, but sort of coming in at second place is uh, is truncus, and um, and so no, I, I will let them uh, PO trophic feed maybe, um, but usually not even that, especially if I know they're going to surgery, you know, quickly. Um, I just feel like the the potential uh, risk really outweighs the benefit. And what would you say our average wait time for a truncus repair is? You've been here much longer than me, so. Yeah, you know, we waited a little longer on on the more recent ones, but I mean, usually it's like within the first week, week and a half of life, we've been we've been taking them. How about you, Sushma? What what's happening over there in the Bay Area? Um, we usually take them for surgery uh, between day of life three and five, so pretty soon. Uh, I do let them feed. Uh, I think most important is that I don't place an NG and force feed them, so to see if they can control themselves. How about you, Kiona? Yeah, I mean, I think for all of these 
major runoff lesions, I have a relatively similar approach, which is to PO them. Sometimes if they look really good, uh, I'll, we let them go beyond the 20 per kilo per day, but this, a lot of times we'll put a limitation on how much they're allowed to PO and just have it be for sort of practice and oral skills, because there is a lot of data about that sort of contributing to your future feeding success. And as an outpatient interstage person, like the families are just hysterical about this in the long term because it's so difficult. So uh, when I'm weighing the risk, the risk benefit, obviously neck is a major prob life-threatening problem, but like I think we are underweighting the long-term feeding difficulties that our families are going to weather. Um, but I also think that you can kind of at least try with a really vigilant team to like feel that inflection point when they start to tip. And so a lot of times, like we're just constantly reevaluating that as we're going because they look totally fine. And then they start to get a little bit more to kipnik and people are escalating the flow, you know, like high flow, 21% or whatever. And I think then, you know, people start giving Lasix doses and all this nonsense. And I think just like being really clear with our trainees and learners and frontline providers and nurses that like, no, 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 no something's happening that's different. And like, this isn't a medically manageable problem. And as part of then moving that child to surgery, you got to turn off the feeds. Um, and just trying to be really cognizant of when that moment is starting to come and feeding up until that point. But obviously like you can miss it. And like Lisa said, I, you don't do not want to get burned by that. And what about up in Canada, Alex? What's happening at sick kids? Well, Would you feed I, this child? Well, I can't say that I speak for all my colleagues in uh, Canada, but I can <laughs> definitely speak to my practice. I I think Lisa articulated quite nicely the tension that people feel in terms of uh, feeding versus not feeding the high-risk uh, congenital patients in general. Um, because the data out there, although limited and all the caveats in terms of its robustness, um, would suggest that feeding in and of itself is not associated with necrotizing enterocolitis uh, in the broader population. And yet we have a very um, uh, a very emotional response, I think, for for that patient who does get necrotizing enterocolitis and happen to be in in the setting of being fed and uh, thinking that th that may have contributed. Um, that being said, I, I, I like my pa my patients to eat, and I actually am probably at the other extreme, and I'm I'm fairly liberal in terms of feed within the context of what our general practice is. So our unit really has a breast milk and maternal breast and milk first uh, practice. So we try in the first 48 hours not to give any uh, food that isn't maternal breast milk and colostrum uh, if possible. And we'll keep uh, babes on IV fluids until uh, mom's milk is available. After 48 hours, um, we do uh, start using donor breast milk. Um, and so my personal practice is really to look at the individual uh, truncus and try to gauge and understand how much, how compromised is systemic circulation. If the systemic circulation is robust, the child is well perfused, um, then I would actually advance feeds uh, towards full feeds. 
assuming that the patient is going to undergo surgery within the first week or so. Um, if there's concerns, then I'd start at least with trophic feeds or uh, 20 ml per kilo per day sort of volume, um, gauge the response and then escalate more slowly if that were the case. If uh, the babe is able to go to breast, then I'd allow them to breastfeed ad lib. Um, it's so interesting that you just talked about donor breast milk because in uh, the most recent NPCQIC meeting that just happened in September, that came up because the NPC registry just published a paper looking at exclusive human milk feeding and outcomes. Um, and it actually, they had significantly better outcomes in like many, what you would expect to be unrelated domains, neck, length of stay, mortality, all kinds of stuff, sepsis. Um, and so in the meeting, I asked the room how many centers use donor breast milk for their hypoclass population, um, which I think these are sort of, a, they're similar questions. Um, and a lot of people raise their hands, but you know, it's like a, it's not really a validated survey, um, but we have not been able to get access to it. We don't use it here. It's really exclusively limited to the um, premature population here at Lurie and to um, patients with like GI surgical issues in the NICU. And so I'm curious if you guys are using donor breast milk because I'm I'm planning to go to the institution and make an argument for it. So I'm hoping that I can get a little bit more ammunition for that today. We are so, at Stanford. We do. We got an exception for the cardiac ICU. So the the patients that um, are allowed are like the preterm babies in the NICU, et cetera. And then patients with um, runoff type lesions, single ventricle type physiology um, can also get donor breast milk in the cardiac ICU. Yes, and we use it at, at Phoenix Children's as well. For specific cardiac subpopulations that are considered to be higher risk. Yes. So we use uh, donor breast milk for all our neonatal cardiac population. Um, what's interesting, and this came up um, at the World Congress of uh, Cardiology, is there are several centers that, as our own, uh, which are using donor breast milk either uniformly across their cardiac neonates or the high-risk uh, subgroups. Um, but very few continue that practice beyond their hospitalization or, and in some cases, beyond their ICU um, stay. And so it becomes a bit challenging in terms of how do you even transition at that point. Uh, and I'm not sure how the uh, how the practice varies amongst the group here, but uh, we continue donor breast milk until hospital discharge. But towards the end, we do transition to what uh, we expect them to have at home, which is either maternal breast milk or formula. Any any comments on that? Anything? Do you guys all do the same? You would transition? Because I don't think anyone has available donor breast milk as an outpatient. Unless yeah. you buy it on eBay. It's some black market shenanigans to get that done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, transition. This podcast. we transition once they are kind of getting to that point where we're thinking about they can go home. Um, we'll start we'll start the transition and our dietitians usually, you know, come up with some like one third, one half, three quarters. <laughs> it's it's usually some uh, transition period. Alex, before we move on to the next question, I just want to ask you about one specific thing you said about how feeds 
are now emerging in the literature as not being related to neck as much as we think. Because certainly I've had patients who are not fed, right, who who get horrible necrotizing enterocolitis. And the first thing people always ask is, what formula were they on? What was the concentration? How much are they on when there's a diagnosis, a new diagnosis of neck? And so are, are you saying that the the mechanics, the stress of the feeding is actually like what we consider stress is actually not associated with getting necrotizing enocolitis. Unfortunately, most of the data is based on observational studies and the observational studies would suggest nearly uniformly that uh, feeding in and of itself is not a significant risk factor for necrotizing enterocolitis. Now, there's a lot that comes into that. Number one, who are you feeding? Uh, so even within the population, uh, for example, hypoplas, uh, people don't necessarily feed uniformly and consistently, and uh, they may choose the only the better uh, of that population, et cetera, from a hemodynamics perspective. Um, there's also emerging evidence to suggest that, as uh, Kiona said, that uh, it feeding uh, may vary depending on the for, the uh, the mode of feeding and the content. So breast milk may be protective compared to formula. We did a study that showed that it wasn't just an issue of the type of feed, but the caloric density. Uh, so necrotizing enterocolitis was associated with more concentrated feeds and higher osmolarity. Um, and so that information um, still needs to be uh, teased out. Um, but overall, the literature would be pretty consistent in saying that feeds are not associated with necrotizing enterocolitis. Lisa, did you want to follow up on that? Uh, well, I was just going to comment, you know, because I, I am aware of, of that data, um, which is somewhat reassuring, but also aware of the data looking at splanchnic blood flow in relation to feeding, you know, and it's sort of hard for me to put those two things together and feel good about it. But along those lines, I'm wondering, is anybody using uh, regional oximetry, NEARS, uh, you know, splanchnic NEARS to kind of guide that decision making? You know, are you, if you're using it and the numbers are good, are you more reassured about feeding that child or does that not factor in? I think that's a great point. We do use uh, splanchnic NEARS uh, extensively, especially in the immediate post-op phase. Um, and it's been quite, helpful in addition to clinical exam actually if their perfusion seems good it's uh, reflective of how their in internal perfusion is but the mirrors have been extremely helpful um, i posted a paper in the chat it's with regard to neck in the preterm population it's a paper by carl sylvester who's one of our gen surgeons uh, and they're saying something very similar to what alex said that it's not always the feeds uh, and in the preterm population, using their blood metabolome, they are able to pick up which children are at increased risk for neck. So I almost wonder if there's opportunity there for us to bring that into our very high-risk cardiac populations. What tests did they use? What biomarker panel have they come up with? Have they validated this prospectively? And can we begin to get clues into which of our babies are at a higher risk? awesome and like Lillian said we can post um, these articles and things as supplementary material in the members only section of the PCICS website for um, listeners to listen to. 
So I think we have time for one last question. Um, the uh, I'm excited because this came up in, in our hospital. Um, so when typically we, we have an admit to discharge unit in the cardiac ICU for our single ventricle population. And so if you have a post-op Norwood, usually we will send like a panel of labs right before they're ready to get out the door. And is there a number on that hemoglobin panel that is going to push you to give them a, a booster transfusion on the way out the door? So we'll start with you, Sushma. I can tell you what we do. Uh, it doesn't mean we have data to back it, but it's based on our practice and our outcomes. Uh, we like to have their crit closer to 40 before they go out. And this is based on our internal data that um, of the children who get readmitted for cyanosis, uh, it's a blood transfusion that helps most of them. Um, and so based on that, we try to get their crits a little bit higher before they leave, as well as having them on supplemental iron. Um, of course, the story is completely different in the immediate post-operative phase, where I think Josh Salvin's data, Josh Blinder's data is helping us understand that we do need to monitor markers of oxygen delivery and not just the absolute crit. So we have let them drift down as low as 2830. Awesome. What about you guys, Lisa? Yeah, well, I have really no data uh, for this at all, but I can tell you uh, just sort of personal uh, practice, and I think pretty consistent with most of us in, in our group at Phoenix Children's. I mean, well, first of all, you know, not all Norwoods are created equal, right? I mean, some of them do fine, uh, you know, at a crit of 37, and others need a crit of 45, and oftentimes for reasons we don't understand. So, uh, you know, that I would take into consideration. I would say, you know, a hematocrit of 35, I would probably definitely transfuse that patient before sending them home. Uh, you know, but kind of if you're in that uh, not quite 40, but close to it range, you know, 37 to 39, I don't know. I, that would probably be on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't think I necessarily would transfuse if the child was doing great. Um, but again, I, there's zero, I have zero data to support any of that. That's Purely just my gut gut feeling. Anything different in Chicago, Kiona? Well, as as both the discharger and the recipient of the patient, uh, <laughs> I think I actually sort of agree with Lisa that you know if the kid's sat is eighty six percent and they have a hematocrit of thirty seven, like I probably wouldn't. Although my nurse practitioner is going to start yelling at me, um, and. And, you know, I think a lot of the way that I conceptualize discharging a patient like that is about the practicalities of the breaches that I have to manage. So, like, not just the grit, all of those things. Like, if their weight gain is almost there, but not all the way there, like, they're going to breach in five minutes after they get home, and I'm going to have to send them back. So, I just, like, I'm trying to think practically about whether or not I think it's going to be successful. Obviously, if it seems like their tissue oxygen delivery is low, like, we would do something about it. And the kids who have sort of more heart failure, more marginal SATs, I think the threshold is lower or yeah, lower to do something about it. But um, I do think that like there's a practical reality to the home pulse socks is so variable. You can't tell what the heck is going on. Like kids just need to have enough room to be durable at home or else we're not, we're doing a disservice to the family. So 
that's how I try to conceptualize whether or not I'm going to actually give it. And I think my my threshold to give it is certainly lower than it would be in a non-Norwood patient, not so much because I'm worried about the physiology, more because I'm worried about the practical aspects of managing the patient at home. Great points. What are you, what about you, Alex? Well, I, I think Kiona brings, uh, brings up a really important sort of uh, practical approach. Um, we tend, well, I tend uh, not to, uh, uh, in, particularly in uh, kids who are otherwise well-saturated and doing well. If uh, there are borderline saturations, where having uh, increased oxygen carrying capacity uh, would be helpful, then I think that's, uh, that's very reasonable. I guess what, when I when I'm hearing everyone uh, sort of share their experiences, I do wonder how um, how much variability is there in your practice across the institution, uh, because I find that a lot of this is very individual uh, based. And have have your groups protocolized this, or is this really left at the discretion of the physician on the single ventricle team or the ICU or floor, wherever the child gets discharged from? That's such a good question. Um, our, our single ventricle team would be in charge of this because they would have to take care of the babies at home and they would have to answer all these phone calls. So they want to make sure they're optimized in every possible way. So they would be the key drivers. And, and, and that's a very small team. Um, and they're protocolized in what they do. Yeah, I think our ICU providers, there's a lot of variation into how dogmatic people are about the emerging data, like emerging throughout all of the intensive care, right, is that blood transfusions are bad for you and everyone's hemoglobin should be seven or six or two or whatever before we give them any blood. And so I think that like it's, on the ICU end, I think more of the providers in my group are hesitant to transfuse unless there's a true clinical indication. I think that on the single ventricle outpatient side, it's much more sort of the pragmatic approach that I was describing. And fortunately, at the time of discharge, usually they are out of the hands of the ICU team. So we can bully the step-down team into doing what we want them to do, um, I think is what's happening, uh, which I actually think is the right answer for the most part. although. Certainly, in the long term, we may discover that it is not the right answer, as we do with so many things. That was great. Um, thank you all so much for the excellent discussion. I'd like to get everybody's cell phone, and I'll just put you guys in my in my group chat as the Brain Trust. And whenever I have clinical questions, I'll just you know send out a send out an answer to this to this great group. I really appreciate you guys and Lillian. Thank you for what such a great idea. Yeah, this was amazing. I wish we could just talk for a whole nother hour. I have so many questions, but more to, more to come, more episodes to come. But yeah, thank you guys for experimenting with us. This was really fun and really helpful and super insightful. I actually learned a lot today, so thank you. Wait, but I have questions about the other things. I need to know what you guys do. I know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, as a service to each other, we should probably email out the answer to these other questions because I need to know what you guys are doing because I have no idea if what I'm doing makes any sense. Maybe we can have a part two, huh, Lillian? Okay. Yeah, we should we, we should, should have a part, a part two, two if you guys if you guys are up for it. Yeah, I'd love a part two.
Yeah, the listeners need to know that we had like a list of like 12 questions because we weren't sure how many we'd be able to get through and we wanted to be prepared. So there's there's more to come. There's definitely fodder for a part two. We only got through four of 10. It's like a part three. <laughs> I don't even care. It doesn't have to be us, but I, I personally would love to see the rest of these questions answered. So whether you, I'm happy to do it again, but if you want to expand to other people, I would highly encourage you to do the rest of the questions. So I think people would really be interested in them. I learned so much. Thank you so much, everyone. Yes, me too. Thank you. This was great. Thank you all. And Lillian and Deanna, thanks for organizing this. Thank you guys for, for being on the podcast. Thank you again for speaking with us today about um, hot topics in critical care, some of those in cardiac critical care, some of those things that um, we don't necessarily have guidelines on um, and we may all approach a little bit differently. It was very educational. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find updated information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.